we start with political protests in British Columbia and across Canada heating up. And we've seen many loud, angry, aggressive protests here in B.C. recently. We've seen anti-old-growth logging protesters show up at the Premier's house. We've seen anti-vax protesters show up at the Solicitor General's house. We've seen environmental protesters blocking roads and bridges and highways. And look what's happened just this week. Earlier this week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau cancelled an appearance in Surrey after an angry protest outside the venue. Uh, News reports now the RCMP advised him to stay away from this event. Here's what Trudeau had to say about it later. I was glad to be able to, uh, to be there virtually, but the safety of Canadians choosing to make their voices heard in politics should never be in question as it was last night and as we're increasingly seeing across the country. Nobody should uh, feel endangered or harassed because of their support for one political party or another. Okay, and there were reports that some of the mob were hurling racist taunts and insults at people as they went into this event. Uh, That's what a Liberal MP said he witnessed that. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Richard Johnston, Canada Research Chair, Public Opinion at UBC. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Richard, thank you very much for coming on today. Good morning. Okay, when do protests go too far? Like when you see these type of political protests, we've seen them, you've seen them throughout your career. Are are these getting like nastier, more aggressive? What are your thoughts on it? They do seem to be. I mean, protest is uh, obviously an important part of political debate. And there is a freedom of speech, freedom of association guarantees in the Charter. But um, there seems to be increasing resort to direct action on all sides of the spectrum, although there's a particular difference between the sides. You know, so environmental protesters are making life difficult for drivers uh, or they're, they're blocking things. But there's no suggestion or even apprehension of, of violence, although they can be pretty intrusive when you turn up on the premier's doorstep. Um, in fact, I, I recall 15 years ago that people were turning up on Gordon Campbell's doorstep, and that seemed over the line at the time, but it all seems rather mild at the moment. But the stuff that's happening in Surrey or that, well, it was an apprehended, I guess, happening in Surrey, but an actual happening in Peterborough has an additional edge to it. It is, there, there is the, if not the threat, at least the, a tone of violence, uh, an attempt to induce fear on the part of the other side of, of the protest. On top of which, these things appear to have a degree of coordination, uh, quite close coordination through social media to deliver large numbers of people in places quite quickly. Uh, okay, well, when you say that it, it seems to be on one side that there are there's violence, I mean, it wasn't that long ago we saw 20 people attack a pipeline work camp, a coastal gasoline pipeline work camp in northern British Columbia. Fair enough. And, and, Fair damage, enough. and damage true. equipment and set fires and threaten, threaten yeah. workers up there. Fair point. Yeah, yeah. I, so I think we're seeing it on both sides. Like, okay, here's it. Let me just have a listen to the Save Old Growth group here. Now, this is the group that took responsibility this week for dumping a load of manure 
outside of Premier John Horgan's constituency office, and they're making no bones about it. They take responsibility for it, and they say they're going to do more of it. Here's a listen to one of their promotional materials here. Disruptive march, a petition, you know, voting. People have been doing that for decades. You don't petition genocidal governments. In the situation we're at right now, the level of disruption needed to actually create change is going to be something that's going to get you arrested. Okay, so they're saying that you don't you don't just start a petition that's not going to work you've got to get out there you've got to take direct action you've got to get arrested you got to get into people's faces what do you think of that well i think it's very critical that you said you have to get arrested right that's in the civil liberties civil disobedience playbook that if you're going to take extraordinary measures then you need to understand that there will be legal consequences and a willingness to accept the consequences and is an integral part of the traditional civil disobedience. I don't hear any such rhetoric out of the Surrey mob or the Peterborough crowd. Yeah, do you think that it was, I thought it was intriguing that Trudeau at that Surrey event this week decided to cancel an appearance there. There's been news reports that that was on the advice of the RCMP, that if he had showed up there, it could have gotten worse. Do you think that by canceling an appearance at an at an event in Surrey and doing it virtually is kind of caving into the protests? Interesting question. I mean, I, I think it is interpretable that way. But at the end of the day, uh, if it is if it's the advice of the police, it's kind of hard to go against it. Uh, so it's you know that 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 we we put a burden on them to maintain civil order. And if, if in their view, it's really hard to maintain, and I think you have to, I think you have to take it seriously. But yes, I mean, there's, there's, it is a distinct possibility that it is a move that empowers the protesters. It gives them a sense of effectiveness, and that in turn feeds the, feeds the desire to do it again. Yeah. The other thing I wonder, though, is if these type of protests are actually counterproductive to the stated goals of the protesters, like... You know, when you see environmental protesters inconvenience people by blocking a road, I don't know how you feel that that is going to win over hearts and minds to your issue. When you see angry people show up outside a, a speaking event with the prime minister brandishing a noose, you know, how is that supposed to change anyone's minds? But your thoughts? Well, uh, it's really not so much that they're, that they're intended to change minds in and of themselves. First of all, I'm not sure about the intentionality in the long run of the of the the people outside the, the Surrey event, but for the environmentalists, in some sense, it's not the first round effect of inconveniencing people. It's the follow on. If it gets into the courts, then it's possible to kind of shift the whole rhetorical posture, and now the protesters become the victims. So that's that's yeah. where where there's a concerted strategy. That's often the point, not the not the the immediate effect but the turning of the tables once it becomes a legal proceeding. Okay, we're following it closely. Thank you very much for coming on with your thoughts on it today. You're welcome. All right, let's talk about the surge in youth violence now being reported by police in Vancouver and Surrey. It was the Vancouver Police Department first putting this one on the radar as a recent surge in acts of violence by teenagers and young people. 
of key concern to Vancouver police. And we've seen a lot of this. A lot of it's been recorded on video, too. I mean, we've got the teen swarmings, random beatings, often recorded and uploaded to social media to humiliate uh, the victims. In Victoria, we recently spoke to the chief of the Victoria Police Department about the number of young people causing mayhem in downtown Victoria. Same thing. Random swarmings, random beatings, some of them filmed, uploaded to social media, just mindless property damage and vandalism. So we're seeing this go on. It's being reported by police in Vancouver and Victoria. Why? Why is it happening? What's driving it? How can we stop it? Let's discuss now with my guest, Rob Rothwell, retired Vancouver Police Department superintendent. I recommend his book, 33 Years, The Unfiltered Memoir of a Cop. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Rob, thanks for coming on today. Hey, thank you, Mike. Glad to be here. Hey, Rob, we've talked about this type, these type of things before, but in your day when you were with the Vancouver Police Department, youth violence, youth crime has always been a problem, right? Like, what was it like in your day, and do you think it's getting worse now? Well, I mean, it definitely existed in my day, and uh, when I was a school liaison officer, uh, you know, we did have problems with youth violence around the school, but there wasn't a platform for it to be exposed to, uh, you know, the entire school population uh, the way it is now, and I think that's uh, one of the drivers is the fact that we've got social media, and uh, students know how to use it and how to use it to the, you know, to their, their advantage and the disadvantage of their adversaries, and it's really unfortunate because it does long-term damage. Yeah, I mean, we've seen a lot of these videos, like you said, being uploaded to social media, and it's like you, basically humiliating the victim, right? Yeah, com- complete, completely. And, and, and so the question is, really, what can we do about it? And, uh, and uh, I'll tell you about an organization that's doing a lot about it. Uh, and, you know, for 27, 25 years now, the Odd Squad, which was formed back in 1997 by seven uh, beat cops in the downtown east side, who were really, they, they really had a front row seat to all of the carnage and despair of the downtown east side and uh, the, the massive overdose uh, deaths and so forth. And they really felt they needed to do something about it to reach out to youth and prevent them from going down this similar path. And interestingly, they each uh, threw in $400 and bought themselves a commercial-grade video camera, and they started documenting. And uh, that uh, documenting led to uh, a partnership with National Film Board of Canada and an outstanding award-winning documentary uh, called Through a Blue Lens, which even today is still viewed uh, globally, frankly. And uh, it really portrays what happens when young people get involved uh, with drugs, uh, especially young people that might be, you know, having difficulty at home or separated from their families and uh, are living on the street in the downtown east side. Uh, And the outcome is generally tragic. And really, uh, those officers wanted to do something about it. And they formed an organization called the Odd Squad, frankly. And uh, it's a a -a one-of-a-kind organization in the world that now has really grown from those four officers to really a a major institution here in terms of educating young people about the dangers of drug uh, use and abuse, but also around gang life, which uh, has taken so many young people as well, as you know. Yeah, some a lot of the listeners are familiar with Odd Squad. I know you've got a big fundraiser coming up, and I want to ask you about that in, in, a, in a moment. So, you know, this type of work, I think, is really crucial. And you mentioned something important there, Rob. Let's expand on this, and that is the school liaison programs in schools. You were a former, you were a school liaison officer in, in public schools, uh, right? That's correct, yes, in an yeah. east side school, Templeton High School. Uh, yeah. And... Uh, 
you know, it's a really influential position where the officers can do a tremendous amount about not enforcing uh, laws and rules against the students. You know, it's, it's, you have to be clear that the officer isn't there as a tool of school administration. The officer is there to form relationships and alliances and provide guidance and mentorship and so forth with young people. And it is very effective. And, you know, I've had lots of feedback from uh, students and students that are now adults that I bump into at various events and so forth. And they really talk about how influential uh, the role of the school officer is in in just providing enlightenment to them around uh, you know the dangers of being a young person, drug use and addiction and gangs and so forth and and I think that uh, you know the school officers always have a good handle on who the problem students are um, and what they 're up to, and can work with uh, counselors and with other young aides and so forth in trying to provide services uh, to divert those young people from what could become you know again a life of addiction or abuse of some kind. So there's a really strong link there that uh, exists. And unfortunately, as you know, in Vancouver, that doesn't exist anymore. But filling yeah. the gap really is, is what the, the work of the odd squad right now. Yeah. So let me ask you about the decision by the Vancouver School Board to shut down that program in Vancouver Public Schools. So they've shut down the, the police liaison program, citing uh, concerns by racial students with indigenous students black students who feel that maybe they're being targeted by police they did not feel comfortable with police officers in their school so then they shut the program down and we've seen others they're not the only school board that's done it we've seen this happen in other school districts now you see a surge in youth violence do you see a connection there yeah, I definitely do. I, I absolutely do. I mean, it's hard to quantify that connection, but uh, recently there was a report out of, I believe, Edmonton uh, from three criminologists who actually did a study of school liaison uh, in, uh, I believe, Edmonton and Alberta that, that found that I think it was 84% of the students and 94% of the staff were supportive of the school liaison program and found it to be beneficial and helpful. And these are the students themselves that are saying, yeah, this program helps us and we feel confident you know, with having the police uh, available to us. And, you know, as I pointed out before when we were discussing this, when I was a school liaison officer, you know, I, I had a young student come to me and disclose that she was being sexually um, assaulted by her family members. And, uh, you know, so you have a case of incest there, and she was not prepared to bring that up with anybody else. Like, uh, there's no way at home she's going to pick up the phone and dial 911 to report it. And so, you know, I've had numerous reports similar to that where young people, they don't know where to turn, but they know they have a school liaison officer they can confidentially approach and, uh, and you know, arrange for help or at least disclose something that's uncomfortable to them. Uh, and uh, so that provision was taken away. And in terms of those students that feel, you know, somewhat intimidated by the officer, first of all, in most cases, the school liaison officer is not always in uniform. They participate in extracurricular sports. They do coaching and mentorship and things like that. Um, but if there are students that, you know, may be um, new immigrants to the country or are uncomfortable around law enforcement, I think those are the students that we actually need to reach out to and bring them, yeah. you know, and make them feel comfortable and, and uh, provide that support to them. Uh, to, to back away and pull the school liaison officers away uh, is a total mistake. It reinforces the fear that these people are feeling. Speaking of Rob Rothwell, former Vancouver Police Department superintendent, Rob, you mentioned earlier that a lot of the kids that you worked with uh, when you were a school liaison officer and also now your work with Odd Squad Productions working to keep kids out of gangs and stuff, that a lot of these kids are come from troubled homes, they've got difficulties at home. 
Um, what about the parents? Like that sort of raises the issue of, well, is it the responsibility of police? Is it the responsibility of school boards to keep right. these kids on the straight path? What about their parents? Where, where are their parents here? That's a good question. I mean, we're not trying to replace their parents. Um, you know, we want to work with parents as well. And that's something the Odd Squad does very well. We now have generations of uh, young people and parents that have gone through our program. So we have helped young people uh, back in, you know, the late 90s and early 2000s that themselves have become parents uh, and now, you know, want their own children involved in the Odd Squad programs. And so we are interfering in that cycle of abuse. And that's the problem is that you can't just address one aspect of a cycle of abuse. You've got to look at all of the elements, that being the parents, the children and so forth, and address it in a more cohesive uh, manner. And, and we've done really well. Uh, you know, in uh, one of our documentaries, um, uh, Scathe, which uh, is a documentary about uh, crystal meth, when that was all over uh, the downtown east side and in every school in Vancouver, there was a young woman that was addicted. And she, you know, we watched her, uh, unfortunately, go from being a beautiful young woman with lots of potential to being drug addicted and on the street. But we worked really hard with her and we brought her back. And she's now in her, I believe, around 30. And she herself is now a mother and married and doing absolutely marvelously well. And she dropped by our offices just a week ago to visit us with her husband and her child. And it's such a remarkable story. And, you know, that's the type of intervention that we need. And that's what the Odd Squad has been doing for uh, 25 years now. And we have grown over those 25 years. And uh, we have a huge inventory of educational material, uh, digital material that we've uh, prepared and worked on. And we don't do this alone. We we do this with the guidance of subject matter experts and uh, and focus groups and so forth. So the material then is entered into the school curriculum now. Um, when the pandemic hit, of course, all of our in-person presentations during the pandemic obviously had to be pulled back. And so um, it, with our facility out in Burnaby, we created uh, a studios and edits um, uh, labs and so forth, and we started creating online digital presentations that uh, go out to students and go out through the schools and okay. so forth. Okay, and all that costs money. Tell me real quickly yeah, about the uh, sure the fund. Yeah, so, so our, tell me real you know, quickly about the fundraiser. Sure. Our budget uh, for 2022 is about $1.1 million. And uh, the, the, the greatest part of that just comes from sponsorships, uh, fundraising, donations, and things like that from members of the public and from organizations that really see the benefit of the work that we're doing. So one of our huge or, or a prominent fundraiser for the year is a large gala. So we have this fantastic gala planned at uh, the Fairmont Vancouver in downtown Vancouver on June 16th this year. And uh, we will have live entertainment by one of our uh, board of directors members, who is Jim Burns, the blues man oh, yeah. of Vancouver. And yep. also Colin James will be a special guest. Uh, wow. We'll have a live auction, a silent auction, a gourmet meal. And we're also raffling off a Restomod collector car. It's a 1971 Plymouth Barracuda that uh, is really... <laughs> A pretty awesome set of wheels that has been modified and customized and restored. Um, that's going to uh, that raffle will start here in about a week, and uh, the draw will actually be on September 30th at our uh, golf uh, fundraiser. Um, so it's going to be a, a great uh, venue and a, a lot of entertainment that night. And you'll see up close all the work that uh, the Odd Squad has done in the last 25 years, all of the success, and what we plan for the next 25 years, because uh, okay. we're not going away. We're getting bigger. 
My guest is Rob Rothwell, retired Vancouver Police Superintendent. His book is 33 Years, The Unfiltered Memoir of a Cop. He now works with Odd Squad Productions, helping kids, keeping them out of gangs. Their 25th anniversary fundraising gala coming up at the Fairmont, Vancouver on June 16th. Uh, tickets and information, oddsquad.com. Let's go to your phone calls. Uh, Sandy and Burnaby. Hi, Sandy. Go ahead. Hi. Um, so I just want to say that I cannot believe these parents who decided they did not want police liaisons in their school. Like, I can't even tell you how crazy that is. So I have a child who went to a school in Burnaby and I needed a police liaison and they helped us so much. And I can't even imagine who you would turn to if you're if you suspect your kids in trouble, if there's stuff going on at the school with your kid like I what a big mistake. What a big what? big mistake. I'm really grateful for your call. Like, was your was your son getting into trouble at school? Is that why you needed a you um, wanted to talk to? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it wasn't only my son. I, I also have a friend whose son got into a lot of trouble. And having that police liaison there, they're yeah. amazing. They're amazing. Like, I can't imagine who you would go to if you need help. If you don't have that, how can you help your child get on the right path? There, there's just no chance then. And it's not okay. just about your child. It's about other children. P- parents okay. need to get their head out of the sand. All right. Th- Sandy, thank you very much for the call. Rob, your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree with her. And uh, and the school liaison officers do a remarkable job of working not with just with the student, but also engaging with parents and so forth. And uh, and I can't imagine as a parent, you know, she's quite right. Where do you turn? Like, you know, the school administration, they only care about the child's sort of, you know, behavior and conduct when they're actually on the school property. Most of that trouble that she's referring to, I'm assuming, takes place off of the school property. But the school is a conduit that connects, the you know, the, the child, the parents, and the officer together. And uh, I think really good things can come from that. And I've seen that personally, and so has your caller. Yeah, I just got a minute left here, Rob. One of the things that some of the people who've been working with the school liaison officer program in the past have said to me, look, if some kids were uncomfortable with police officers in the school, let's talk about modifying the program. Like, take police officers out of uniform. You know, don't have them walking down the hallway with a with a, an exposed gun on their hip. You know, like... <laughs> Let's let's change the program to make it more acceptable. But your thoughts? No, I, I agree. I mean, there's always room for improvement, and sitting down and having discussions would definitely be fruitful. Uh, you know, but taking an arbitrary line and saying no more, uh, you know, unfortunately, is is a huge loss, and who knows if it will be recovered. Um, but anyway, listen, uh, Mike, I really appreciate the opportunity here to talk about uh, the Odd Squad, and uh, and I just want to throw one thing out there. Uh, okay, you know, thir- thirty seconds. Caller, Go ahead. Okay. Thirty seconds. <laughs> Oddsquad.com, for $10, if you become a Blue member, you can have access to all of the educational material that we have developed, uh, all the di- digital material, the uh, documentaries and so forth, and, uh, and I'd really encourage people to get in there and have a look at what we've got uh, around uh, drug use, uh, gang affiliation, and so forth, and, and that is all designed for young people. It's, you know, it, it is really relevant to them. It's gone through focus groups okay. and experts, and it's effective. Thanks for coming on. Okay, you bet. Thanks, Mike. Three men came by and started shooting the playground. My nine-year-old got shot in the right there leg. There seem to be more guns in the hands of young people. There are people at a barbecue. It's not an event that you expect to end up leaving 
in body bags. Every day you turn on the news, somebody's getting shot. When is it going to end? Okay, that's part of the promotional material there for the Coalition for Gun Control in the aftermath of the Texas school shooting. Lots of talk about increased gun control on our side of the border here in Canada as well. Earlier this week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is signaling that tougher gun control legislation could be coming in Canada. Critics say we already have some of the toughest gun laws in the country, so why do we need tougher ones now? Let's discuss now with my guest, Wendy Sukier, President of the Canadian Coalition for Gun Control. And I'm very pleased to welcome Wendy back to the show. Thank you very much for coming on today. Oh, lovely to be here. Thank you. Wish thank you it were very better circumstances. But. Yeah, and uh, thank you for saying that because I wanted to ask your reaction first off off the bat about, you know, another school shooting in America. You know, it's just absolutely gut-wrenching to think of children losing their lives this way. What went through your mind when you hear another one of these? Uh, you know, for me, the, it brings back memories of Ben Blaine, which for me remains one of the worst the worst, most horrific cases because of the the age of the the kids. But remember the the week before there was the shooting at Tops in Buffalo where uh, black shockers were deliberately targeted. So it it happens all too often, and uh, you know we hear about these cases weekly in the in the U.S. But yeah. Canada is not immune. Right. So when we think about like some of the gun control issues in the United States, which are top of mind right now, I mean, you've got a bill in the U.S. Senate for enhanced background checks for gun purchasers being held up in the U.S. Senate right now. I mean, when you compare U.S. gun laws to Canada, I mean, we got much tougher gun laws here, correct? Oh, sure. But the U.S. is the, the by far the worst country among industrialized nations and we're about fourth in terms of the uh, number of firearm deaths so you know i don't understand why people would compare us to the u.s rather than to europe or to australia or to new zealand so yeah we're better than the u.s but that's not saying much okay well when you do the comparison to those other regions and countries you mentioned where does canada rank we're fourth among oecd countries in the rate of uh, gun deaths um, so we're not the worst, but we're close to the top in terms of the rate of gun death. And then if you look at our legislation, uh, we're close to the bottom in terms of the rigor of our controls. So, uh, you know, the European Union has standard controls across that would uh, that control the sales of all guns require licensing, handguns are virtually banned, and military assault weapons as well. Uh, in Canada, we have pretty good licensing of gun owners, but we, um, we lost the 1977 controls we had over the sale of firearms, and those are only being reinstated for rifles and shotguns. We now have a million legally owned handguns, about three times as many as we had 15 years ago. And we've seen the results of those as well as military weapons that are still in circulation. So we're not as bad as the U.S., but as I said, that's not saying much. Okay, speaking of the U.S., let me play a clip here for you from U.S. Senator Ted Cruz 
from Texas, and you'll hear him here being challenged by a reporter about U.S. gun control laws. And listen to his response here, and I'll get your thoughts. Is this the moment to reform gun laws? You know, it's, it's easy to go to politics. But why does this only happen in your country? I really think that's what many people around the world just, they cannot fathom. You get your political agenda. No, it's God, honestly, God love you. Senator, it's not. I just want to understand why you do not think that guns are the problem. Okay. And he went on to say that he believes that this is more about mental health issues in the United States. But, Wendy, your thoughts? Well, it's it's not either or. Obviously, the you know there are simple solutions to complex problems, but the rate here's uh, you know without getting into stats, the rate of murder without guns, stabbings, beatings, whatever, is approximately the same in the UK, um, Australia, and the US is is higher than Canada, but it's maybe twice as high. When you look at murders with guns, uh, the U.S. is 10 times uh, the rate per 100,000. And just to put it in perspective, the U.K., which has twice as many people as us and certainly has drug abuse, mental health issues, you know, racism, inequality and so on, had about 30 gun murders last year. Twice our population. We had 10 times that. So the availability of guns is not the only factor, but for sure, um, where there are more guns, people are more likely to be killed with them. And I think that in Canada, we have well-established traditions of hunting. Obviously, Indigenous peoples have, have rights around hunting as well. But when it comes to handguns, when it comes to military assault weapons, most Canadians think that the benefits are outweighed by the risks. Speaking of Wendy Souk here, Canadian Coalition for Gun Control. I'll be speaking later in the show to Rod Giltaka, Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights, on on the other side of this issue. Uh, Wendy, when I, when I speak to him, I know he will make the point that the problem is not with gun laws in Canada, which are already very strict, but he says the problem is illegal guns being smuggled across the border from the United States into Canada. He will. I know he will also argue that one of the problems is a weak criminal justice system we have in Canada. Just in the headlines today, uh, you've got the shooter in the Quebec City mosque shooting, Alexander Bissonnette, who has uh, pleaded guilty to six counts first-degree murder, six counts attempted murder, and, and now being we're, we're learning he'll be eligible for parole after 25 years, and the victims there are upset. Do you think there should be tougher criminal justice sentencing on gun with gun crimes in Canada? If you talk to the victim, they would prefer that we invest in prevention. And Giltaka is interesting because his organization references firearm rights. There are none in Canada. The Supreme Court has said that repeatedly. So I think that's, that tells you where these sentiments are coming from. And as to the source of guns, in BC, where you are, there was a study done that was... Um, three years ago that showed that the majority of firearms in British Columbia covered in crime were originally legal guns. I just pulled the, the, the 10 years of mass shootings in Canada um, and uh, almost all of them were either legal guns or 
guns that were legally owned that had been stolen or sold illegally. So it's simply, and when we look at domestic violence, when we look at suicide, when we look at murders of police officers, those guns are primarily guns that are legally owned. There are exceptions, but it's simply not true to say that the only problem is with illegal guns. And when it comes to mass shootings, mostly legal gun owners, many members of target shooting uh, clubs. And the, the solution there, it seems to me, is to really think about the risks that we have right. when we allow one million legally owned handguns in this country. Last question for you. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau earlier this week reacting to the Texas school shootings uh, indicated that tougher gun laws are are on the agenda in Canada. Do you believe that we need tougher gun law reform in the, our country right now? And, and what do you think should be the top priority? Well, as I said, we, you know, we've, we had 10, almost 10 years of the Conservatives relaxing the laws. And as a result, we've got the highest rates of gun murders we've ever seen. We need stronger controls over licensing, and those are those have been introduced. We need to reinstate the 1977 controls over the sales of rifles and shotguns. We're just seeing the regulations on that coming out. We need a ban and buyback on military assault weapons. That's in process. But the one thing that I think most Canadians clearly support now is a complete ban on handguns. And whether that starts with a ban on sales or whether that is uh, something more aggressive, you know, depends on who you talk to. But we need a national ban on handguns. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you. Three million Canadians, licensed legal gun owners, will be celebrating that privilege to own firearms by heading to their local range. Recreational shooters and hunters, Canadians, have owned and used firearms since before Canada was even a country. All right, as Jim Shockey there uh, with commenting on the Firearm Rights Coalition Range Day to celebrate gun rights in Canada. We're talking about gun control in our country in the aftermath of the Texas school shootings. You heard my conversation with Wendy Suk here, president of the Coalition for Gun Control in the previous segment. Let's get the other side of it now. My guest is Rod Giltaka, CEO, Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Rod, thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, in the aftermath of the, the Texas school shooting, when you heard about this one, yet another is gut-wrenching event in the United States. What goes through your mind as a guy who's, you know, one of the leading voices for gun gun owner rights? Well, it's, it's the same thing that goes through everyone's mind. How do we stop this from happening? You know, just because you have a firearms license in Canada doesn't mean that you're any less of a person or any less sympathetic or sympathetic than anyone else. What do you think about Justin Trudeau now signaling uh, tougher gun laws are coming to, in Canada? Well, the, uh, Justin Trudeau and, uh, and um, you know, a handful of, um, of his other uh, partners in the government, they just look, they, they, they wait for these opportunities just like they waited right till the Nova Scotia shooting to roll something out within two weeks, um, which is the, the biggest gun ban in, in Canadian history since the, uh, well, I guess since the, the early 90s. Uh, so they, they they sit and they have these bills ready and they wait till their opportunity so that they can leverage the outrage and the and the uh, the suffering of people, and that's their opportunity to roll out new new firearm legislation and that's just a political attempt to keep the opposition under control and it's uh 
It's just sick behavior. One, one of the firearms that has been banned under the weapons ban that you just referenced is the AR-15 semi-automatic rifle, which is, I prob- I guess, the most notorious rifle when it comes to these type of event- events in the United States. And once again, it was an AR-15 that was used by this shooter in uh, Texas. So what do you think when you hear Trudeau saying, like, well, look, this is why we're banning it's why we're banning these guns. Look what's going on in the United States. Look at the gun that the guy is using. It's an AR-15. That's why we're banning it. What do you think of that? Yeah, well, it's an argument that's put forward to, uh, you know, to appeal to people that have never taken the time to really understand this topic. The AR-15 is, is, shows up in these mass casualty events because it's one of the most popular rifles in all of the United States. It's just common. And, and every time you, you say something like that is, that is a, a overtly and objectively true, everyone piles on you as if you're a terrible person for saying things that are just, just flat out the truth. So there are a variety of other firearms that function identically to the AR-15. Well, when I say a variety, you know, we're talking millions in North America, tens of millions. And, you know, they don't, they don't get used as often because they're not as common. So at, at the end of the day, what is causing people to commit this kind of violence? And when are people going to stop playing around with gun control and figure out why people are doing these things? Whether it's a van attack in Toronto that killed 10 and injured 16 in a matter of seven minutes, or it's a multiple victim public shooting in another country. We have a violence problem, and we need to get serious about it. If you, Anyone that's got a heart in their chest out there should be serious about solving the problem, not playing political games and taking guns away from people that have never even contemplated doing something like this. My guest is Rod Giltaka, Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Let's listen to what Trudeau had to say here a couple of days ago. Rod, get your thoughts. So here is Trudeau commenting after the Texas school shooting, and you'll hear him signal here about tougher gun laws coming to Canada. Here's Trudeau. We move forward with a commitment to work with provinces and municipalities that wanted to flat out ban firearms, ban handguns, uh, to allow them to do that. Um, we've been working with them and some of their concerns over the past while because uh, we understand there is a range of opinions and views uh, across the country. But at the same time, Canadians are remarkably united in wanting to see less gun violence, fewer deaths from gun violence across the country. And that unity is uh, what we're going to move forward with as we take new steps uh, in the coming weeks on gun control. Okay, new steps. You heard him say there at the end, new steps are coming on gun control. Rod Gotaka, what did you think of his, what he had to say there? Well, there are new steps coming. There was a, uh, there's a, a new bill coming on Monday that's on the order paper for release, so we'll see what that is. It's probably going to be a new rehashed version of Bill C-21 that didn't make its way through the process last time around before the last election. And so they'll be banning airsoft rifles and, and other toys, and uh, among other things. And claiming to bring in red flag laws, we've had red flag laws since since the early nineties. It's it's just it's you know, and I apologize for my tone. It's just it's so disingenuous, and it just preys it preys on people that don't know any better, and that would by default trust things that the prime minister would say. And as as we know, this is a prime minister that name calls and and conducts himself as a as a you know a low level Twitter troll in his in his address to canadians and it's just we're in such a terrible mess you know we need to stop the violence and end a story let me play a clip here for you from my previous guest rod get your thoughts uh wendy sukir president of the canadian coalition for gun control 
and you'll hear her call you out here by name. And so I thought I want to play this for you and get your thoughts. Here's what she had to say. And Giltak is interesting because his organization references firearm rights. There are none in Canada. The Supreme Court has said that repeatedly. So I think that's, that tells you where these sentiments are coming from. And as okay. okay, so she's referencing the name of your group, Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. She says there are no firearm rights in Canada. What do you think of that? Wow, what a brilliant strategy that is. You know, you don't have a right to drink alcohol, but the government has a responsibility or, or a, um, a luxury of saying, well, you know what, uh, you don't have a specific right to drink alcohol, but we're going to regulate that, right, so that it balances off with public safety. But we recognize that it's an important, peop- uh, important thing for a lot of Canadians to have a, a drink of wine with dinner. You know, it's, it's such a flimsy, ridiculous argument. And I have to, <laughs> I have to listen to that stuff all the time, all this while, Mike. And this is the big, this is the big problem. All the while, people, people are still being shot and bullets are still flying in Vancouver and they're flying in Toronto. It's been going on for 35 years, increasing gun control, yet the violence continues. In fact, the violence has skyrocketed under the liberals that have brought in all this new gun control. And they, it's, it's, it's completely ideological. At the end of the day, it's political. It's, it's dividing Canadians. It's like, well, you have to hate Rod Giltakit by name because he owns a firearm and stores it and uses it responsibly, but he disagrees with me. So he must be a terrible person. And it goes all the way across our society. It's terrible. What? It's not producing results. And we, we got to turn away from this stuff. What, what should be done instead? Last question for you, Rod. Like, if, if more gun control is not the answer, clearly that's your position. But what should be done instead to address the violence that you're describing there? Well, we know that there's root causes that cause violent behavior, certainly in the, in the, uh, the criminal element in Canada. When it comes to multiple victim public shootings, well, think about this for a second. Look what we're, especially young people, because remember, Mike, two 18-year-olds have committed multiple victim public shootings in the last month. Yeah. Okay, and they've killed all kinds of people for whatever reasons. People have been locked down for two years. If you disagree with it, you're somehow a misogynist or a racist. They've been told, children have been told they'll never own a home. Children have been told they can't speak their mind or, or express other opinions or they'll be silenced and dogpiled on. Children have been told that the world is ending in eight years because the world's going to boil. What do you expect a child of 18 years old, especially coming from bad, a, a bad home and other social circumstances, to somehow become resilient to all of this, all of this stuff coming at them day after day? We've got to stop this. It's irresponsible. What, so what are you saying? So, coming from people like Justin Trudeau is irresponsible. It's got to stop. They're driving okay. everybody crazy. Wait a sec. So you're saying that, what, teenagers in the United States are going on these rampages? because of covid lockdowns no i'm saying well uh, i guess to some degree but i'm saying it's a very similar um very similar problem as it is for kids that get wrapped up in gang youth they perceive from the world around them and all the messaging they're getting from everybody at every turn i have no future there is no hope i will never be anyone i will never live the life that i see everyone else living in you know the people older people like you and i and so hey who cares I'll sell drugs, I'll shoot other people, who cares? And that's a real problem. And whether it's a van or a firearm, you can't ignore the problem, and people have to stop ignoring it. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it, Mike. Let's talk about rising prices for everything out there right now. Inflation at a 30-year high. The inflation rate up again last month, according to StatsCan. Everything getting more expensive, including... Alcohol, and that includes domestic Canadian wine. Have you ever noticed when you go to the liquor store, 
the cheapest wine on the shelves always seems to be the imported stuff, like wine from Chile or Argentina. Why are domestic wines, including wines from British Columbia, why do they seem to be more expensive? Let's discuss that now with my guest, Daryl Brooker. Daryl is the CEO of the Okanagan Crush Pad Winery. Very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hey, Daryl, thanks for coming on. Oh, pleasure, Mike. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so what's the answer to that question? When you go into the into the liquor store, you know, a lot of people like to support our domestic wineries. We make great wine here in British Columbia, but it is it can be pricey, right? BC wines can be expensive. It definitely, they they are not the cheapest wine on the shelf, Mike. You you're right there, and uh, they're, they're, it's quite a complicated uh, issue, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But but if I break it down into the big buckets, it, it's really cost of land. It's like saying why is the cost of rent in Vancouver so high? It's because the purchase price of the house is so high, uh, and that translates to what the what the rent would be. Uh, and it's it's exactly how it works here. You know, per acre here, it's. Three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars per acre. Where you go across the border into Washington State, and that can drop down to fifty thousand dollars an acre. You go to Chile, and it could drop down to ten thousand dollars an acre. So that's a really big part of it. Um, but it's also our size. It's our minimum wage. You know, our minimum wage for farming is uh, the same as minimum wage for everything else in Canada, and uh, that can be three, four times higher than what minimum wage is in some of the these other countries that we're competing with. So it's um. And size of our industry, we're we're a very small industry, and in that that you know, uh, so there's no real economies of scale like you might see in the larger wine producing countries. Right. So it may be tough to compete on price with all those factors there, but Canadian wines do seem to do well when competing on quality, right? Like the quality of BC wines, quite Absolutely. high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But with with BC, the invent, you know, the 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 startup of BC VQA is really to guarantee quality, and uh, and that's really what the industry competes on is competing on quality. And uh, you know, and I would put our wine from a price to quality ratio up against any wines in the world. You know, the right. the great wines from Burgundy are hundreds of dollars a bottle, uh, and you know, even wines from Napa they started okay. hundred dollars up. Yeah. Daryl, let me just interrupt you briefly here for a moment as we go to the CKNW newsroom for breaking news. Now, breaking news. This is a global news special report on 980 CKNW. Yeah, Mike, some good news. Uh, those two girls who reported to have been abducted last night have returned home and are safe. Uh, this happened in the Strathcona area. Vancouver police had a press conference uh, moments ago. Again, some good news. Those two girls reported to be abducted last night are home and safe. Back to you. Okay, thank you for that, John. Uh, some important breaking news there, and that is certainly some reassuring news to hear for sure. Thank you for that. Speaking of Daryl Brooker, CEO, Okanagan Crush Pad Winery, and we're talking about the uh, ex- expensive BC wines. Like I was reading that the average price for a bottle of BC wine is around $20 a bottle. Is that That's about right? Correct. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. yeah. And you can get a lot cheaper from like what? South America. I think even Australia. You can get cheaper wines from Australia, can we not? You you can yeah, and that's yeah. that comes down to land availability. Like it's uh, yeah. there's a lot more land available to grow grapes on. But the the other thing to keep in mind is the BC wine industry is very sustainable. So uh, you know, take Okanagan Crush Pad, we're fully organic. So to grow organic grapes uh, is a lot more expensive than to grow conventional farming grapes as well. So that that also adds to the price of the industry. Let's talk a little bit about some of the cost pressures and input costs for 
growing grapes and producing wine in British Columbia, like inflation, supply chain issues, fuel costs going through the roof. I mean, all of this drives up costs for the winery, correct? It definitely does. Uh, you, you just take the, the physical bottle that the wine is in, and uh, the bottles have nearly doubled in price over the last three years. But it's also the transport, you know. So, so uh, you know, a forty thousand dollars worth of glass or bottles to put your wine in, uh, what used to cost five thousand dollars to transport it in, uh, is now costing thirty thousand dollars to transport it in. So, you know, it's wow. uh, the, the the pressure on the supply chain is just is nonstop. Uh, and then also it's our climate. Like we, you know, our, our yield per acre is about a quarter of what you'd yield in California and, and about a fifth of what you'd yield in, in uh, Chile, you know, because we are a cool climate. We have a shorter growing season as well. So there's a lot of pressures all through the supply chain. Yeah. Speaking of our weather, what are recent vintages looking like? We've had unpredictable weather here over the last few years, to say the least. We have, yeah. So unfortunately, the recent vintages, well, fortunately, they're looking good from a quality perspective, but they're looking uh, poor from a yield perspective. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, we, we were down anywhere between 30 and 40% over the last two years uh, in, in yields. And so that puts a lot of pressure on, on availability of BC wine. You know, it, we, we are a tiny wine region when you compare us uh, to virtually any other region around the world. When you take a look at some of these cheaper areas for producing wine around the world, you know, we talked earlier about South America, are, are governments there propping up those industries with government subsidies? Definitely, and especially on export, because for, for most of these countries, they produce a lot more wine than they can, con con than they can consume in their own country, and uh, so the government really pushes up export. Uh, Europe does that, South America does that, Australia definitely. So um, we're also competing against government subsidies from these other countries. Yeah, what could be done, do you think, to improve the situation here in Canada? Yeah, I think I think more government support uh, for for our industry, and uh, you know we just lost excise as an example. As of we uh, Canadian wine used to be exempt from excise, but uh, but the international uh, bodies like Australia and California they objected to that and put in a trade challenge. And so uh, as an industry, we've just lost. Uh, we now have to pay excise on our wines. That adds another seventy cents per litre to to our uh, to our wine. So there's. There could be a lot more government, provincial and federal, uh, support for the wine industry. I mean, you, you take, for every dollar spent on wine here, it adds $3.42 to, to our GDP, you know. So buying Canadian wine really, really puts a lot back into agriculture, tourism, all, all those areas that are so important for, for our province and our country. And so I'd like to see more support uh, from, the, from the government, provincially and federally. Speaking of Daryl Brooker, CEO, Okanagan Crush Pad Winery. Uh, Daryl, what about some of the domestic trade barriers within Canada? Like I know you have experience in the, in the wine industry in Ontario before you located here to British Columbia. What about the, some of the trade barriers like between provinces? Those seem yeah. kind of counterproductive as well. They are the biggest trade barrier is shipping between provinces. So if I have somebody in Ontario that likes our wine and they want to order it direct from the winery, then they're not allowed. You know, we can ship yeah. with BC, but in Ontario, uh, I mean, Alberta, Quebec, they love BC wines. You know, we, we are, a, the, the, the quality of wine here is, uh, you know, I come from Australia originally. I've worked in Australia, New Zealand. You, you, the quality of wine here is sensational. And uh, the rest of the country wants to access our wine, but the only way for them to really buy our wine is through the in most of those provinces. 
Well, what what could be done to improve that situation? Just bring down those trade barriers, right? Exactly. Federally, yeah. they they have removed the trade barriers. It's a provincial issue right now. So it takes the BC and the Ontario government to agree uh, in, in the, that we can ship directly to consumers in each other's province. Why don't they not want to do that? They're protecting their own domestic industry, I guess. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. they're protecting their tax dollars as well. Uh, you know, because right. if you sell through the LCBO in Ontario, then they collect more money. So they're protecting their tax dollars and they're trying to protect their own provincial industry industry as well. How does this year's grape crop look? We've had such a wet, cold spring here. It has been a wet, cold spring, but you know, our summers are so reliable, specifically in the Okanagan. So I'm optimistic. The The yields are looking like they might bounce back a little bit. And uh, and yeah, I, I'm optimistic. The weather's starting to turn. We're in the high 20s uh, here next week. So I, I think we'll be good. Thanks for coming on today. My pleasure.